It's the season finale, and boy have we got a doozy for you. Mark Twigg is an executive director at Cicero AMO. In the late 90s, he worked for the Labour Party, and whilst he moved quite quickly into the private sector, public affairs and government relations have, as you'll hear in a moment, made up a key thread of his working life. Add to that his campaigning, specifically for diversity and inclusion, and you will, I think, have a fantastic person to listen to for the next 40 minutes. But don't take my word for it. Here's Mark talking to me and my dad. Would you say that Cicero was a values-driven business? Yes, very, do, very much so. Do you specify them? Is, is, is that part of your co- I, corporate culture? We've always been dif- a different beast um, because we were started by three gay men. That's not to say that being gay in lobbying is unique. There's a lot of gay men in lobbying. But we'd come from backgrounds in financial services. And 20 years ago, the city wasn't gay-friendly. The big motivation for me was creating a culture where... I could be open at work and not worry about it. And I didn't have that um, same freedom when I was working in the insurance industry. So we were always different from the inception. We have a number of values that we we like to um, inculcate in people. And I think in terms of how lobbying was approached back then, so I think there was a public perception of lobbying as a dirty industry. Um, And I think a lot of that perception still pervades today. But... As, as my other half, Ian Anderson, will often say, the lobbying scandals rarely involve lobbyists. And one of the reasons for that is lobbying's evolved. And, and what I'm doing at Cicero is creating... Just the, before you go there, though, because that's what I really want to hear about, but just before you go there, just for our audience, define lobbying. Lobbying, I think, is seeking to influence the outcomes in the public policy process for a specific set of interests. Now, there's a perception that there's only the private sector that lobby, but it's actually, within the UK at least, it's a very heterogeneous world. A lot of the work that I've done over the um, recent years, um, I come into direct contact with Oxfam and Christian Aid and others on a regular basis. So I think we actually have a very open um, and inclusive model of lobbying in the UK. I don't think there's anyone who's got the market sewn up. But everyone is looking to influence. And one of the things I've always done, it may be because of my background in the Labour Party, I always try to use my relationship with the clients to get them to think about how they can adopt a positive um, social impact in terms of what they want to do as a business before we then go and influence policymaking. So if you have a negative practice, don't go and lobby to change legislation to defend that. Look at your business, future-proof it, against the reputational or financial impacts of of having negative business operations and get rid of them. And I think when you start from the position of lobbying, um, trying to influence that process and maximising your influence, then being able to go to government, being able to go to politicians and say, actually what we want is good good for the greater good. You know, we've thought about what the community wants. That's how you win the argument. If if your lobbying position is going to end up on the Daily Mail... You don't want to be embarrassed by that. Yeah. And I think because we have clients who care about their reputation, it's not usually a difficult conversation. It's good to hear. The, the I interrupted you to get get you just momentarily to, to explain the wider world of lobbying, which you've done brilliantly, but I interrupted you and we were about to talk about where you're taking it specifically yourself. Yeah. <clears throat> when I got into lobbying 20 years ago, the, the new Labour government, as it was back then, had come up with this concept or popularised this concept of evidence-based policy making. 
if you want to influence us, then show, show us the data. And if you want to influence, influence us in your direction, you have to demonstrate where the public good is. We've taken that to another level. We look at the whole toolkit that you need to influence people. And increasingly, that, that's a social conversation. Even the politicians, 95% plus, have a Twitter account. And they use that as their broadcast channel. You're able to influence things much more subtly now. But that means you have to go about doing that lobbying job very differently. So it's a very different beast. And it's actually very creative. And I think, you know, given that we're, the entire economy is digitising anyway, that, that's where the future for lobbying lies. Are there elements of the industry that you look at and go, oh, I wish I could change that? Yes. I think we've, we've had this debate in, in the industry now for the last 10, 15 years about regulation. And I find it peculiar that Cicero has been on the leading edge of calling for more regulation. Um, so as lobbyists, we want to see the industry properly regulated. Mm. So ensuring that everything is transparent and above board. The problem we have is when the government passed the legislation six years ago or, or whenever it was, they defined lobbyist very narrowly. So it's effectively lobbying consultant lobbyists um, who are captured by the regulation. The problem is there are many people who lobby, yeah. um, but if it's not their full-time job, they're not captured by the regulations. So if you're a CEO who goes and meets ministers very occasionally, then you don't have to be registered as a lobbyist. Sure. The charities are in the same boat. Um, law firms, you know, there's lots of companies mm. who have a, an interest in lobbying on behalf of special interest groups or clients or different parts of the community who weren't captured by the regulation. And I think whenever you create regulation that has an inbuilt, unlevel playing field, you're going to get perverse incentives and perverse outcomes. Um, and if you want to create transparency, then you have to create transparency for all, mm. which is unfortunately something that the government's been um, fought against. So we've always been saying, yeah, bring on regulation. Um, in fact, bring on more regulation and bring it on for everyone. So you know, whenever we see lobbying scandals, as I was saying earlier, it tends to be former politicians who are on the make. Mm. Now, a former politician who's on the make isn't a consulting lobbyist. Now, I would never behave sure. like a former um, MP because if my reputation gets dragged through the mud, my business and everything we've strived to build over 20 years is destroyed. Mm. Former MPs don't really seem to worry about their reputation, which is why they behave <laughs> the way they do. You know, so there's this public perception of lobbying being rotten. What's actually rotten is former MPs, yeah. but the public don't see that distinction. That's a fundamental and routine failing of regulation because when it seeks to regulate one particular group in the financial services industry, for example, its advisors, then all sorts of others come around the side and go, well, we're definitely not advisors, so you don't have to regulate us. And that means we can do whatever we like, actually, to, to whatever extent the yeah. regulations permit. So they are lobbyists. They're just fake lobbyists. Yeah. I see that in, in, in our industry all the time. As you know, I've been railing against it, what, for 25 years now yeah. or something, totally ineffectually, but never mind. Uh, if regulation is going to prescribe how an industry works exactly, then it's got to limit the actions to those it's writing prescriptions for, if yeah. uh, you'll forgive the uh, wrong use of language, uh, because the moment it doesn't ring fence... Then obviously abuse just occurs on what I have often called the Wild West frontier of financial services. All sorts of shit goes on there. And the regulator goes, mm, no, not really my job, actually, because I'm only regulating these people. Yeah. And you think, no, no, you've got, to, you've got to protect the consumer. 
Uh, not not create little tribes that can be worked around. That's that's pointless. In, in financial services, it's that discussion between: Do you regulate the entity or the activity? Um, and regulators like regulating entities because if a bank's licensed as a bank, they know that's a bank. But if you've got another organisation trying to offer banking services um, without being regulated, that's actually quite a difficult conversation. Um, so regulators like to sweep that under the carpet. Now, if something's too difficult to deal with, we'll forget about it until it blows up in our face. If there's a massive mis-selling scandal and suddenly billions is required in compensation, then we'll worry about it. Well, um, the, way I, the way I read uh, a lot of the, uh, the studies into the financial crisis of 2008 was that was effectively caused by insurance companies feeling that they, weren't, uh, they could make a fortune in the mortgage market because they weren't banks and they weren't subject to the, the intense regulation of the Securities and Exchange Commission in America yeah. that, that stopped banks from doing dodgy mortgages. And they went, hello. Mm-hmm. So suddenly dodgy mortgages were freely available, being packaged up, and, and that whole incredible scandal yeah. um, broke and, and ruined the world for a, a long period, still, still echoing today. I've heard it contested that that was regulation. What did it? Yeah, big burden to carry as a as a, a regulator. What do you think of the current regulator and the new boss? I think he's making a lot of good noises. So if you look at the senior board level appointments he made back in the spring, you know, appointing three women on one day and making it clear that diversity and inclusion are going to be an important part of how the regulator operates, but also its expectation of how regulated entities operate. I think is long overdue. So those kind of moves are very positive. He's also um, done a lot internally to make sustainability um, a key issue for the regulator and embedding sustainability into financial markets, how banks, insurance, insurance companies, asset managers operate. And the big issue is how do we transition from where we are now to zero, um, net zero emissions by 2050? You can't do that without financial services playing a big role. Greening financial markets is an essential element in greening the wider economy and wider society. Because if people can't access finance through green products, then it's going to be very difficult for everyone else to transition. So financial services is, is at the heart of that. And it's important that the regulator signals that to the marketplace. And I think he's done that. The other big thing, I think, is the consumer agenda, where he's made it part of his legacy, I think, that things like the consumer duty will happen and will have an impact on the marketplace. I think the regulator has been guilty in the past of waiting for mis-selling bubbles to get big before they act on them. I think he's trying to preempt that. I, I think he genuinely wants to avoid any big cock-ups on his watch. And I think, you know, if you, if you catch your mind back 10, 15 years, when the FSA, as it was then, was routinely accused of being asleep at the wheel, I think he definitely wants to avoid that. So I think there's a lot of positives that are already coming from the statements he's made. Uh, that's, that, that's great to hear. And when I, when I read the consumer duty paper, or the consultation paper as it was, I thought, gosh, this is a huge ambition. Uh, yeah. And then another CEO in financial services called it an ambulance chaser's charter. And I went, hmm, okay, that, that makes it much more interesting to me. I think that's a good thing generally. Well, yes and no, but uh, I like the, uh, the fact that people will be held absolutely accountable for what their businesses do on a, on a personal level. I think that, that's essential. But the, uh, the thing that I looked at when I looked at that, I thought, how are you going to enforce this? How on earth are you going to preempt failure? Mm-hmm. You're going to create another raft, as every piece of regulation does, another raft of duties for the good, yeah. the people who want to comply. 
you're going to create more profitability for those who don't give a flyer about compliance and just work around the edges until they get stopped. Some of them never get stopped. Yeah. There has to be a a grind to it. There has to be a police force. There has to be a, a enforcement action. And it, that's really expensive and really hard yeah. because it's not clear cut. You can't just say, oh, you're guilty. You know, there's, no, yeah. there's no smoking gun in 90% of cases. There's just eventually you go, oh, that was the gun. Okay, yeah. it's been cold a long time, but we can see it did kill all those people. So, yeah, it's really hard to do that. And, and that's what I would like to hear from him mm-hmm. is we've had lots of great ideas treating customers fairly and, and senior market managers' conduct regime. These are all fine, noble pieces of work. Where is the enforcement that makes them a reality to the consumers every day, other than as it applies to the, the biggest businesses? Those businesses yeah. who are deeply conscious of brand have to comply with all of this and become less competitive as a result with those who don't give a flyer. Yeah. It's the ones who don't give a flyer that I, I just he needs to put out of business. Well, I, I would accept... He needs to bring within the fold of doing it, doing it his way. I would accept that to a point. Push back slightly on the idea that big brands care more about their reputations... <laughs> Uh, it was the big banks that ran up fifty billion in compensation on PPI, PPI mis-selling. You say that the regulation is going to be expensive to enforce. I, w- I would have thought not mis-selling fifty billion pounds worth of products is an incentive for us. When the financial services industry get it gets it wrong, you know you've got the potential for a clusterfuck of magnificent proportions. And I still don't think that the financial services industry is capable of avoiding um, those outcomes. Now, there's always the potential to get it wrong on that scale. I'm always mindful of the fact that 12 years after the financial crisis, we've learned almost no lessons from it, and things like that are going to happen again. And uh, you say that, Mark. I talked to clearing bank directors, if I can use the term clearing bank, is that still a valid description? Anyway, generally, I'm actually talking just sub-board level uh, to, to highly influential people, and they are entirely, as individuals determined to go beyond compliance yeah. to focus entirely on the consumer outcomes and the banks have big statements going on within them the two i talk to particularly have big, big statements going on within them about how they will be customer driven and how they will do yeah. all of this and how they will not uh, reward some sort of hard sales or anything like that and the people i talk to oh they exemplify all of that uh, which is makes them open to talking to us frankly so i'm looking at that going mm, there was a catastrophic failure that catastrophic failure has cost them, as you say, fifty billion, and they have learned from it. So, so there is no question now. I think that bank leadership is determined to comply. Obviously, though, the whole way of of, of operating in a regulated market has to be defined the edges of regulation, as to see what is allowed and what isn't allowed. I mean, de facto, you have to do that in, in any form of regulated society, uh, and therefore, if you head too heavily into what isn't allowed. Uh, or sorry, what isn't regulated, mm-hmm. um, or is allowed just, then that's where the... So, so it is the conscience element that I think a lot of bank executives have added to their armoury, and insurance companies too. You have, to, you have to remember the industry is transmitting trillions of pounds every day. And when something operates on that scale and touches every life, the ability to transmit bad outcomes... Mm-hmm on a massive scale, is always going to be there. It's and actually almost inevitable that it inevitable. will happen. Yeah. I, and I get, I get what you're saying about the, bank, the big banks learning lessons. I know from my client base, masses has been invested in compliance. Mm. And compliance teams are much bigger now than they were 15 years ago. But the danger is not necessarily going to emerge amongst four or five big banks. 
Now, what lurks under the surface in the cryptocurrency market, for example, <laughs> and, 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 and where and how a regulator is going to intervene in that market and make a big impact? Because you know that when you get to the point where um, black cab drivers are starting to buy um, new, new innovative products, that's usually about when the shit hits the fan. And we're getting to that stage now. Do you know, I, I, I'm gobsmacked the number of people who are telling me they're in cryptos who know absolutely nothing about anything to do with, with, with money. And no. you, when you talk to all of those who do, uh, know quite a bit about money, we're not. We're no. not going anywhere near them. And yeah, so it is the people who have most to lose who are now plunging in. And that is the absolute signal of, of, of the end of a, of a bull market. It, it always has been. Yeah. Of course, we may be wrong this time, but someone once said to me that the five most dangerous words in the English language are this time, it will be different. It never is. Can you be a leader today in the lobbying industry, in the financial services industry, without looking at regulation and, and looking at where the potential errors are and attempting to correct that? I think it's difficult for leaders to not do everything they can to future-proof their business. Um, if there are particular risks that you can see materialising, hmm. um, as a leader you have to take action and you have to protect the business against that. Yeah. Um, and by business, I mean shareholders, I mean the employees, I mean suppliers. Um, you have to think of it holistically. A lot of people are impacted when a business goes under. And if you're in that position, you have to think about what risks, a uh, mix of risks is within your business and manage all of them, which is, I think, where we get into the, the whole ESG debate. You know, we are transitioning from brown economies to green economies. There's going to be a lot of stranded assets. Um, as asset managers, as investment banks, you have to think about where you're putting your money in the marketplace and are the assets that you're investing in, are they sustainable over the long term? If they're not, why are you investing there? So there's lots of, I think as leaders, you have to think about um, risk in its entirety. And I think there are examples of people in the industry who I think do a fantastic job of demonstrating leadership. One in particular, I think he's a, a great chap, Paul Feeney, the CEO at Quilter, who makes a point of talking about his personal lived experience of mental health. That, I think, is hugely important, not just for his, his, his workplace, um, but for the rest of the industry. You know, if, mm. if you, can, if you yeah. can demonstrate that you've come through these issues and you're more resilient and you're actually a better leader, mm. they're the kind of conversations and the kind of issues, I think, that modern leaders should be thinking about. So whether it's, whether it's sustainability, ESG, diversity, inclusion, now these are not just buzzwords. You know, these are the issues, the touchstones that define our life today. And I think there's a recidivist set of managers who think they can get to retirement without having to worry about it. Forward-looking managers actually think, I need to embrace this, I need to deal with this, because this is what's shaping my workforce, it's what's shaping society, and therefore my customer base. And if you get ahead of that curve, that's, for me, what leadership is. You're just there touching uh, on, on the question of, of culture in a business. When we were talking about banks, I was, and you talked about their compliance department, I immediately thought... And for once in my life, I didn't say what I immediately thought. Uh, <laughs> really, where I see the big investment in, in, in the, the banking bits that I talk to is culture. Yeah, They're talking culture now. Yeah. And uh, the one bank I talk to, I'm talking to their effectively head of culture in insurance product development. And when, you, when you've got someone like that, whose job it is to make sure that what you're doing is right, yeah. uh, then, you, then you have begun a transformation or you are transformed, one, one of the two. I'm generally reluctant to have buzzwords to yes. try and describe what that looks like. Yes. I, I like to just think of it in terms of knowing the difference between right or wrong 
And you mentioned that phrase earlier, treating customers fairly. It's basically being able to say, would I treat my mother yes. the way I just treated that customer? I never had a problem with what I meant. It was patently obvious. It's, it's, <laughs> that, it's, it's, it's that simple. Do good properly. Yeah. Um, treat every customer like your mother, well, presuming you like your mother. <laughs> <laughs> Some, there are days when I have doubts about, about mine. Um, <laughs> don't, 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 don't. No, you don't. No, you don't. You're still her beautifully despite her manifest <laughs> yeah, So I, I think it's... I think a lot of this is quite simple, um, but it's overcomplicated by people whose job it is to complicate things. I think on a human level, people know what good looks like. Um, yeah. Yes and no. So in Life Search, we, we set out to, to define what good looks like, and we came up with five, um, you might call them buzzwords. Yeah. And from that time in 2013, I think we finished the work to, to date, I really have talked about that, I would say five times as much as I've talked about profit. Yeah, we we come and use that all the time, and we have a system whereby in every meeting it's raised, and whenever anyone's uh, recognizing someone else in our internal uh, Yammer feed, internal communications feed, kind of Facebook type system, with all of them, we're we're trying to get them to see that these five buzzwords are not a bad way of making sure UTCF fundamentally. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of them I remember us having a debate about once before was tolerance. Um, because that's one of them. On the podcasts where Debbie Kennedy, Life Search's new CEO, features, Tom talks about tolerance being different to tolerating, which is something that I can I can get behind. Uh, tolerance has that at the end, which is a little more gen- gentle than tolerate. Yeah, that hard T kind of gives it a bit. Yeah, I have a sort of jaundiced relationship with the word tolerate because I remember as a child, if ever I didn't like anything. My mother always used to say, well, you'll just have to tolerate it. <laughs> Mine too, um, <clears throat> yes, absolutely. Um, so when I sort of reached adulthood and realised that a lot of people weren't happy with the existence of gay people, I didn't want to be tolerated. Mm-hmm. I don't want people um, to put up with gay people. I want them to accept that gay people exist and are equal humans and citizens in society. Absolutely. Um, so the idea that we're a problem that you put up with rather than everyday people just going about our everyday business um, mm. and should be accepted as that. means today I don't, don't really like to talk in terms of tolerance, but more of acceptance. I think acceptance is more um, inclusive. It's more universal. So that's what I aspire to. So when mm. people say, um, we really need to be, we really need to- more tolerance in our society, I, I sort of question that. And I don't think it's just semantics. No, I can see your point. Acceptance is the wider, softer word. If I replace tolerance with acceptance, and I don't want to jump down a semantic wormhole for too long here, but if I shift tolerance into acceptance, I think what I'd bump into is the fact, well, there's there's lots of stuff we don't want to accept. We, yeah. we don't want to accept malpractice in financial services. We yeah. don't want to accept people uh, talking about critical illness without considering income protection. Again, we don't want to tolerate that either. <laughs> so there, there is a tolerance is the slightly harder word that in a commercial context hmm. I think was almost agreeing on the fact that tolerance tolerating is what you do when you can't accept if that's about a, a mistake at work then that's fair enough you make mistakes and we tolerate those and try and make them better if that's about a human being and the way they're living their life then that becomes a very very different question and and why why are you not able to to accept those choices yeah. which choices 
the choices that human beings make for themselves. That is their, their I'm choices. Talk, I'm talking about a wider sort of your, yeah. your sexuality, your, your gender. I'm, I'm, I'm just questioning whether sexuality is a choice. Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. Fair enough. I don't know anyone who chose to be gay. No, no, no. Particularly, no, particularly growing up in the 80s where you used to get beaten up at school for it. Mm. This idea that children are um, educated into a gay lifestyle it was completely alien to me when I was actually a child in South Yorkshire in the 1980s where being gay was... <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, um, even as you say that, the whole ridiculousness of the concept is is is, is exposed. It, you, know, you, you could not have been educated to be less what you are. Do you know what I mean? I mean, yes. you were murdered for what you are, and, and and so yeah. So anyone who lays that out or thinks it can be re-educated is frankly in the Stone Age just hasn't got the hang of the way the way human beings operate. Yeah. But the White conservative government in the nineteen eighties thought that putting literature into schools would encourage children to be gay. Um, I when those I same, that whole, whole I mean, debate. Was, when those same children were having their heads yeah. put down toilets and yeah. sort of pulled, the flush mm. pulled um, because the other kids thought they were queer or bent mm. or you know, all the rest of it. it just, when people have those kind of conversations, I really, really question whether they understand human nature. Mm. As an eight-year-old, you take the easy option, which means being a heterosexual. The idea that you choose to be gay and take the hard road is just not how eight-year-olds operate. Mm. So... From my perspective on that nurture versus nature, it's absolutely nature. Yes. Um, I don't see any nurture. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't want I don't to. know if you know why there's a debate about it anymore, no, is there? No, I don't know. I mean, there's always a fringe to the edge of it. I mean, there are always nutters out there on the edges, but I think the central core of society, well, the, this society the Republican Party are still question what literature goes into schools in, in oh, no. very many of the states of America. Oh, so. Yeah, that's not the edges of society, is it? Yeah, it's me. You, you, would, you would have thought if Alan Turing had chosen to be gay... Yeah. Then he would have repented before the chemical castration, castration started. And so now looking around, and I guess looking more at the UK government that you you lobby and, and other organisations that you work with, do you still feel that within government you are, like, as, as a gay person and gay culture is universally accepted and, and it's just now it's there and it's part of, it's a column of society and do you feel totally accepted by everyone. Government is a reflection of the society we live in. You don't reach the sunny uplands of a progressive society in five minutes or even 50 years. Ideas, notions, information are passed down through generations that pervades for, for centuries. And that's true of homophobia and racism. Now, all of these attitudes that used to have common currency mm. are still passed down through society. And, and you don't erase that from a culture in 10, 15, 20, 30 years. Sure. It, it takes generations to make progress mm. um, or to get to the, the end game. I think we have, have made, made a lot of progress. And I have to say, um, in the interest of disclosure, um, I am now married to the government's LGBT workplace champion. So I can't say that the government is not doing anything. So there are lots of branches of government that are receptive to this mm. and are doing concrete things to make life better. So yes, we're making progress, but you know, there's always things we can do differently. And one of the disappointing things I think about, we've talked about the financial crisis. One of the disappointing things about the financial crisis is that I think the combination of quantitative easing, which made wealthy people wealthier, and austerity, which made poor people poorer, has meant that there is a lot of resentment within grassroots society. Those people who are who are in left behind communities feel abandoned, particularly by the elites who've done nothing for them for decades. 
And that sometimes materialises in a pushback against progressive values that mm -hmm. the elite like to project. Um, so the idea that sort of civil rights, human rights, um, black rights, gay rights, it represents an elitist agenda. I think it's become detached from mainstream society. So in some ways we are going backwards. You know, the number of homophobic attacks being reported has gone up for the last six years. So there is elements of our culture that are pushing against this, unfortunately. And I think I'm not going to sit here and blame those people. Um, I come from a community where a lot of that pushback is taking place. And for 40 years, they've had no investment. You know, the kids don't get good jobs. They don't get access to a good education. Yeah. You don't have good housing. Why should these people look to London and people in the elite saying, you need to be more inclusive and more progressive? When they have a right to be angry. Whether some people have got nothing positive to offer their lives. Yeah. So I think, like all things in society, it's a social contract. Yeah. If we want to carry people with us, you have to invest in those people and in their communities. And you have to give them a stake in society mm. and a reason, to, a reason to see why this is a good thing. And we haven't done the investment. So things like levelling up need to be much more than a political slogan. It's no, a buzzword again. It, did you, did you, when you listened to the budget uh, two days ago, did you feel that, that was, there, was an element, uh, there were elements of levelling up in that? There clearly is. The levelling up fund is going to put money into projects in local communities. Where I grew up in Rotherham, the, the town, the council submitted three bids and got two of them. Um, so there is going to be a regeneration project in the town centre and there is going to be a development of um, new skills hubs around the town. Um, so things are happening. I guess the problem I've got is the potential for that to be window dressing for the fundamental stuff that's not, not happening. And the problem that we've got, and all of the independent economists have made this point in the last two days, we are going to have a um, cost of living pinch in the next 12 months, um, which is going to hit poorer people. So the fact that Rotherham's getting £40 million to tart up the town centre, when everyone who lives in Rotherham is going to feel poorer in 12 months' time, you've, you've got to question where the balance is being struck in terms of um, Rishi Sunak's position on, for, on Wednesday. And whilst investing in places like Rotherham is absolutely essential, investing in the individuals on, um, through the tax system, through the benefit system, through the job market... A fundamental problem is a lot of people in Rotherham don't have access to, to good jobs, well-paid jobs. And building out the private sector in towns like that is absolutely critical. You know, you go to places like Rotherham and, and over half of the workplace, workforce is in the public sector and the NHS is usually the biggest employer. That's not sustainable if you want to raise incomes. You know, you need a vibrant private sector. You need companies like mine setting up in places like Rotherham, creating wealth and employment and jobs. And I still think we've got to go some way to having the industrial policy in place that makes that happen. Industrial policy, it always seems to me, operates with, with huge companies, companies that have to invest billions in order to build their plant and their machinery and, and all that stuff, which is ever more difficult in an ESG world. Yeah. The sort of more ground, grassroots approach, it seems to me, has been... Uh, very much encouraged by the pandemic, in that businesses like LifeSearch, and there are many like us, found that there was really very little cost, in terms of productivity, I mean, to letting people work from home. Yeah. So we now have uh, employees and self-employed agents right across Britain. Yeah. And you know what? They're recruiting their friends because LifeSearch is a lovely place to work. So they're saying, come on, that's a, that's a wonderful 
way of naturally re-energizing societies that have been left behind. I think because the, the jobs we offer are, you know, some of them are relatively low paid and yeah. relatively kind of first jobs. You know, you, you can get in there and, and learn your trade and then build a career from scratch. I agree with that. A beneficial side effect of the pandemic. There we are. I agree with that. But we still need to invest in the infrastructure in local economies. You know, they need the broadband. Yes. They, Vital. They, they need the transport links. They need the housing. We've actually done a big piece with Legal in General this year, looking at, we, we call it the Rebuilding Britain Index, that looks at all of the aspects of infrastructure and what it is that really drives people's um, sense of prosperity. And it comes down to the things we access every day. So it's not about the health service. You know, we, we access the health service when we need it, and we need it to be of a good quality. Um, the things that drive the sense of prosperity is, do you have access to a good home and a good job? And if you've got a roof over your head and gainful employment that gives you a good salary, they're the things that drive people's prosperity. And the reality is, whilst you don't have scarcity of housing in the north or problems with affordability, you do have problems with the quality of the housing stock. There's a lot of poor housing that people don't want to live in. So we need more housing. I would actually, one of my, if I was prime minister, one of the first things I would do is scrap housing benefit and use the money to build social houses instead. I can't see why we spend £35 billion a year subsidising private renting um, landlords um, when we could be replacing the pipeline of social housing, which would actually give people secure, secure homes. Um, and you can do £35 billion, you could probably easily build 250,000, 300,000 houses a year. And within five or ten years, you're going to see a, a massive transformation in the quality and available of houses for all people in society. Um, why we don't do that kind of thing, I do not know. But the housing has to be fixed and the investment in the jobs has to be fixed. Now, I agree with you, Tom, that the, the pandemic is encouraging people to move out and is taking good quality employment to the regions. I actually had a um, colleague say to me the other day, I'd like to relocate to Gloucester and just come into London two days a week. And I said, fine, no, it doesn't make a difference anymore. Um, you can do that. And that is happening a lot in a lot of places. The problem you get is those people might go back to the region with their superannuated London salary and just push housing up so that the locals can't afford to um, live there anymore. Um, and we are seeing that in pockets of the UK. Um, so even that has to be planned. Um, the idea that you just let it happen because digital technology supports it. We need to have a strategy. The whole way in which our working lives um, are being, and our lifestyles are being um, reconfigured by the pandemic is going to be seismic. And we can't just let that happen. There has to be a strategy to, to drive it so that it's constructive and productive and is inclusive. And I don't think people are really worried about how we do all that in an inclusive way. You, you, may, you may just end up with us and them with poverty and wealth cheek by jowl in Gloucestershire in the way that we've got it in London. You know, you need to create an economic model that carries people with you. There's a difference between you and I in that I look at all the efforts of the states, of various states over the years to, to create economic models, to try and regulate who moves where and who lives where and how they live. And I see an endless stream of fantastic intentions and, and really clever people with great ideas. And then a bit like the regulator, I see those great ideas just foundering on, on human nature or on whatever and local corruption or whatever the, the problem is. And I think mm, so much easier if you can create the environment and then say, go on, 
this environment should encourage everyone to do the right thing mm -hmm. rather than everyone has to do the right thing because these are the rules. So that, that makes me sit on, on one side of the little political spectrum and, and you on the other. But what I love most is when the world becomes more progressive without a, a government or a dictator or whatever saying, mm -hmm. this is what we will do. And so when I look at the world of work in Britain today, and I see the minimum wage being accelerated, and I look at my own PNL and think, hmm, I better forecast for uh, rising wages uh, going forward. Then put inflation to one side, uh, I say that has to be a good thing, whether it's uh, politics or, or pandemic. That seems to me what's happening. How we cope with it, will we end up with what someone called the Argentinian model, where Eva Peron puts up the wages and then you have hyperinflation and then you have poverty? Well, <clears throat> there's a risk of that, but hopefully uh, Rishi and everyone who guides him, the civil service, will uh, will manage to tread a path which doesn't quite lead us in that explosive situation. Well, I remember we had this conversation in 1997 when I was campaigning for the Labour government, which was planning to introduce the minimum wage for the first time. And vir virtually every naysayer prediction about what that was going to do didn't come true. You are absolutely right. I was on the opposite side of that argument and I was completely wrong. That's a great big lever they pulled. And when government pulls a lever that, that well, hmm, then, uh, then it's a great thing. It's a great progressive thing that, that has been done. It, it put billions of pounds into people, low-income pockets, and there's no evidence anywhere that it destroyed employment. It didn't. Um, we just carried on going. Yeah. Obviously, that, that you can only take that so far. If the government was to decide that the minimum wage was £25 from next year, um, then clearly that would have impacts. But I think... He's just put it up by about 5%. Moving to £9.50, I yeah. don't think he's going to kill anyone. No, um, no but that is a 5% rise against an inflationary backdrop of one or two. So it is, it is, a, real, it is a real, real rise. It uh, is, it he's, is. He's, uh, but we're predicting yeah. inflation is going to hit 4 or 5% yeah. next year. Yeah. Um, so that's how you level up. So in, in real terms, they're standing still. And the idea that the poorest in society should stand still, I think if we want to live in a society that gives people dignity, that should be the bare minimum of what we do. I take your point. The idea that the poorest should go backwards just, yeah. just seems counterintuitive when this country's got the level of wealth that You're it's got. You're talking there of universal credit. I, I guess I'm sort of slightly against the grain in Labour Party thinking in this sense that I think the benefit system should work for people in work more than it works for people who don't work. Um, I grew up in a community where there were lots of perverse incentives, where people didn't have the incentive to go out and get, get a job. And if you are one of those working class people that has a strong work ethic and is doing two or three jobs, as many people in this country are now, and living next door to someone who's happy to just claim benefits, I actually find that slightly obnoxious. There are people who will always need that help in hand. You know, I've got people in my family who are profoundly disabled, who will never be able to work and will always need financial support. But most of the millions of people in this country who are claiming working age benefits can and should work. And we live in a society where there are pinch points in every labour market. You know, their employers are screaming out for employees, yet we're paying two and a half million people unemployment benefits. That is a mismatch that government should take seriously. But yet we persist with it every year. We, to we tolerate that every year. Mm. Um, and we shouldn't. And I think... The, the one thing government does not talk about enough for my money, and it is my money because I'm a taxpayer, is the issue of welfare reform. The Conservative Party said nothing about welfare reform in 11 years, 
and Labour did precious little itself, other than to make it more complicated in a Gordon Brownian way. Um, we need to simplify it. We need to give people clear incentives and clear choices to get off benefits and into work. You and put I, it very well earlier when you said uh, prosperity comes from having a, having a home uh, and a job. Yeah. That is the fundamental requirement of it. And, and back, someone no favours by allowing them to remain unemployed. And back in the 1970s, which um, history teaches us was a terrible period in British history, um, when the economy was falling off, off, off the rails, I remember asking my mum what was the 70s like, and she said, well, actually, we had a really nice council house, and your dad had, um, had, had employment throughout the whole thing. And by the 1980s, the employment had gone. Now, there were no jobs in South Yorkshire. Steel and coal mines both went. So that stability which the post-war settlement created clearly wasn't sustainable, um, but we dismantled it in a way, in a way that was very short-termist. You know, the Germans went through a same transition, but did it intelligently. Um, you could call that intelligence industrial policy, which we didn't have. So Thatcher thought industrial policy was for the socialists. So I think shifting to a personal question, you have been quite personal during this. How do you relax? How, how do, do I chill? How do I chill? Um, for me, it's always been about exercise and endurance exercise. I tend to find that my brain doesn't switch off unless I've been running for at least 40 minutes. And, quite a task. And, and cycling for about an hour and a half. Okay. So I now cycle for about an hour and a half every day. Uh, and on my days off, I run for an hour. And I do that every day without fail. I don't think I've had a day off from exercise since July the 1st last year. And um, if I, I now know that if I go more than 24 hours without um, exercise and pheromones and fresh air, um, that I start to feel grumpy. Because it's quite an intense lifestyle running a business, as Tom knows, people in a business never realise how much the weight of the world is carried on the senior manager's shoulders. And being a good, good manager is about concealing it. You know, you're paid to protect everybody else from the kind of crap that senior management teams deal with all day. And actually, someone left the company a couple of years ago to become MD of another business. And I met him for um, lunch about three or four weeks later, and he said... I never realised how fucking difficult your job is. <laughs> That's very... It's a lovely thing to hear. That's a lovely thing to hear. You share the burden of leadership with your husband. Yeah. You run a business together. Yeah. You live in Wimbledon together. Yeah. I don't think he rides like you rides or runs like you run. I've, only seen, he, I've only seen him run three times. <laughs> um, once... Almost certainly by design. Um, <laughs> once, I, I think, we were running late for a client meeting... Um, and the other two, we were running late for flights. So, <laughs> client, I was are, hoping there'd be a bus in there somewhere. <laughs> client, clients and aeroplanes are the only thing Ian will run for. Uh, but running a business and a marriage together, living with each other effectively 24-7, that, that, that is a, um, a I, challenge, isn't it? I think it's the easiest thing in the world. I don't think we could have done what we've done without each other. And oh, I can see that. It's just very simple things like... Because you understand the pressure that the other one's under, we don't spend our evenings having pointless arguments about why the other one's been out having industry dinners till midnight for the last three nights. Because I know that next Tuesday that's me. Yeah. So we put demands on each other, but in a reciprocal way. And that just learn teaches you to be accepting or tolerant of the other person's excesses. Um, 
probably makes it easier that we've not had children because you don't have that third party to think about. So we only have to compromise for each other and, and we know what that compromise involves. So you don't mind compromising. So there's been a perfect sense of yin and yang for 20 years. You know, I always say to my mother, um, me and Ian never argue about anything, work-related, personal, anything. Um, to which my mum says, well, that probably means you don't love each other. Um, my mum's concept Thanks, is... Mom. <laughs> yeah, my mum's concept is... You know, I was going to say the opposite. I, I was going to say that is one hell of a love affair that allows you to work like that. Yeah, my, I think my mum's sense is passionate people argue with each other all day, which is odd because she's not Italian. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she's... She's Yorkshire. She's Yorkshire. <laughs> through, and through and through with a bit of... Um, actually, she's got a bit of Irish thrown in, so that, that might oh, explain right, where yeah. it comes from, um, <laughs> if we can make racist stereotypes. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we don't argue about anything. There's just a, an acceptance of our lifestyles and our working patterns and a common sense. You know, we've created Cicero in our own image and we're very proud about that. So, yeah, we cut each other... At, just as much slack as the other one needs, and it's worked perfectly for 20 years. And that is a lovely place to end season two of Searching for Elephants. A massive thank you to Mark Twig and all of the others who have made up our herd this season. If you haven't heard the rest, Mark is in very good company. If you are listening and want to continue the conversation, then please do. Send me an email at angusbagri at livesearch.co.uk and don't worry, we'll be back with a whole load of new elephants very shortly. This season of Searching for Elephants has been mixed by Asa Hugo and Raf Swiderski. The music currently tinkling belongs to Patrick Bagri. And the show is, as ever, produced and edited by me, Angus Bagri. Cheers, everyone. I hope you have a very good end of your year. Hold up. 